Welcome to our second emergency broadcast about the war in Jerusalem and Gaza. I am joined again by my co-host, Nora Barrows-Friedman, our former co-host, Justin Poder, and Tarek Lubani, who's our good friend and also a emergency room physician in London, Ontario, and for the purposes of this show, also at Shifa Hospital, Gaza's largest hospital. We're going to discuss some of the ups and downs of the last uh, two weeks. Our first broadcast was during the war, and we tried to paint a picture of what people faced at that time. Now we have an opportunity to look back a bit and reflect on some of the things that have happened. And why don't we start with Tarek? Give us a sense of what you're hearing from your colleagues in Gaza about the attacks that people have been hearing about, but pretty sanitized because we didn't have a lot of reporters. We had reporting studios destroyed, capacity destroyed. So we did feel, I felt in particular, that we did have a missing element in this war. We didn't see the carnage explored because there wasn't very many people in there, reporters-wise, to do that work, it felt like. And the Palestinian journalists were doing courageous work, but having their buildings destroyed and their centers bombed and were constantly treated like everybody else in Gaza is, like combatants. What was the word from your colleagues, from the doctors in Gaza, how it went? We've all been through so much in Gaza that it was somewhat surprising to me when I heard people say that this was really the worst that they had experienced. These are not people who are prone to hyperbole or people who have any real incentive to to exaggerate. In reality, the thing that they experienced and saw that was different from before is that there truly was no safe place. And the medical infrastructure appeared to be targeted more or less indiscriminately. To bomb the roads around Shifa Hospital is not, of course, bombing the hospital itself, but it is disabling it and serves the same functional purpose of making it impossible for uh, patients to arrive and physicians to give care. Of course, the killing of several physicians has been pretty devastating as well. And there there was at least one other physician who was badly wounded inside an ambulance who's now in the intensive care, uh, who's an intensive care doctor. Ultimately, I think, you kind of can break it down into the paramedic uh, group of people who saw unbelievable carnage on the streets and spent lots of their time trying to recover bodies from under rubble. And then the hospitals where they were working truly nonstop dealing with people with severe and massive injuries. Part of the description the Israelis said about attacking the roads was that they were attacking them to try to access tunnels underneath. Did that seem to match with anything that makes any logical sense on the ground. It seems as though the targets that were hit were often in the city centers, right? Like they were often in the city center or they were down in the normally fairly well-protected beach area, right? It's hard to know exactly what the Israelis were doing and why. I suspect because of the way that you can't really hide Palestinian deaths, that Hamas is going to be forced to discuss how many people died in the tunnels during the attacks. There's really, firstly, it's not something that they generally hide. 
And secondly, I don't think even if they wanted to, that they would be able to, because most people, while they might not know if, if their families are militants or not, most people will realize that so-and-so wasn't at home. And now when we got his body, he's full of dirt, probably died underground. As well, Hamas generally wear uniforms when they're, they're conducting their operations. And that's not just Hamas propaganda, it's like part of also their attempt to sort of discern themselves as a legitimate army and resistance force and stuff like that. So there's lots of internal considerations for why they always wear a uniform as well. Sounds like they're trying to differentiate themselves from civilians. Um... <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's part of the rationale. Like, look, why not wear a military uniform when you're in the military? Firstly, you always want to identify yourself. And the downside, which might exist in the West Bank of the Israelis coming in and targeting you, doesn't exist in the Gaza Strip. No one's going to be able to identify that, you know, this person is military and so let's go in and arrest him in the middle of the night. So the advantages of wearing military uniform are the same as they are in any other part of the world, whereas the disadvantages are also pretty much gone um, that they would have experienced quite a while ago. So in general, when you see people who are injured in, in quotation marks, the line of duty in terms of military stuff, they, they're almost always wearing military gear. Yeah, they're, no, they're not going to cover up their, their murders, right? Like, are, they're not, we're going to hear who was who. They're extremely proud of it. They're not, there's no reason for them to hide it. I think also, conversely, on the Israeli side, I think we got fairly accurate Israeli casualty numbers if you know like including the 255 trip and falls that they count they count them very detailed but i think we can both on both sides the numbers um are are honest i mean I, I, except for how israel says who the people that were killed were right they just say that everybody was and nobody somehow nobody was a kid or as Al, i remember ali abunima did a tweet where he broke down their there we killed 200 terrorists 248 people total so ali was like by that logic at least a dozen of the terrorists killed were children so that's interesting um yeah so just to, the numbers seem to be 248 the death toll um 66 of whom were children they're saying 17000 buildings were wow that's such a crazy number destroyed? Yeah. And I mean, I, I know in terms of right now, we're just starting to get the damage reports. Nobody was out there in the clinics trying to figure out what clinics were damaged. There were at least a dozen clinics that were damaged, at least uh, partially, probably more than that by the time the final accounting is done. And um, I think six or seven that I heard that were majorly or completely destroyed. And of course, several hospitals, including Indonesian hospital, which is a major new hospital in Northern Gaza. So this is bad for medical care. This is bad for Palestinian health. This is not even to speak of the pillars of medical care, like water and sanitation and so on. They're saying 800,000 people don't have normal there are, water access. There are about 25 sanitation points, and I forget how many like major water pipes. But in reality, all of the water and all of the sanitation depends on electricity anyway. So even if they hadn't been bombed, and in 2014, almost all of the sanitation points were bombed, 
even if they hadn't been bombed, they're non-operational for the meantime. I think today was the first day, today or yesterday was the first day that, uh, that fuel entered. So uh, it's just, yeah, it's just all around going to be bad for health over the next few weeks. They were like attempting to try to somehow figure out how to get at tunnels. And people were talking about this, the new reaction was like, it felt like earthquakes, right? Because it was presumably bunker busters that are going down below the ground in order to access tunnels. And then once that explosive capacity is in the tunnel, it disperses, right? So the water attack was a was a tactical military attack by the Israelis to destroy the water system, right? You said that too, in 2014, they destroyed the power plant effectively, right? These were targets, part of their targets in their target bank. I'm curious if they actually seriously damaged any tunnels because the key to bombing a tunnel is that if you successfully get an explosion into there, you're going to have secondary and tertiary explosions without much trouble where basically, let's say you drop a bomb at point A, the path of least resistance for the pressure wave is going to take it so that the exit will be at the next exit. And so the Israelis, for example, did release video of them successfully shooting at missile launchers and showing secondary explosions, right? There are explosives in a building, they bomb the building, there are secondary explosions that, that come as a result. So it means that clearly they're, I mean, we know they're watching everything that they bomb. Why haven't they released video of them have producing secondary explosions or very typical tunnel style explosions from some of their bunker busters uh, or some of their bombs? My best guess is that they did very little or no damage to that tunnel network, but it's gonna be really, really hard to know. Um, I think for the next 15, 20 years, the best way that we'll know is sort of whether Hamas sort of comes out and, and says it and how many people died in those tunnels. Well, there's a question that I wanted to ask of John and Tarek, which is, I've been hearing a lot about Israel's ability to surveil from people who read the Jerusalem Post or, you know, follow the Israeli media. And they talk about how Israel can, you know, listen based on shooting a laser at a wall or drones or whatever, and they have all this human intelligence. So it seems to me like Israel would want you to believe that, whether it was true or not. I wonder what the hype is in terms of Israel's relative ability to kind of surveil and control everything compared to the reality. I don't know whether this was revealing this current round of attacks was revealing of that in any way. Yeah, I mean, I think so. Their entire leadership was able to be safe for the entire war, which was a like if people are saying it was the scariest, deadliest, not deadliest, but uh, well, like per capita or whatever you want to say, that the uh, strikes caught people's attention as being worse than normal, right? And none of the evidence, like Tarek said, points to any of that. The missile launchers are buried for one thing. They've been buried for three wars now, and that's something they learned from Hezbollah. To bury the rocket launchers, they come up from underground, launch the rockets, and then they go back down. And the Israelis were clearly unable to knock those batteries out because again, like Tarek said, you could see secondary explosions. They would be very happy to show their population that they were knocking out rockets before they were being fired, considering how much attention the Iron Dome gets for knocking them out once they're in the air, 
you would think that it would follow that the IDF would also want to show you that they lock out, they knock out missile launchers. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think at this point, it's difficult to know, but I, it seems at this point, like they have tunnel access to buried rocket launchers. And they have a network of tunnels that even if you did get an explosion into one of the tunnels would be easily reconstituted through the grid that they've created in the area. And the fact that no leadership was taken in that, yeah, I mean, I think it shows that there are limitations. The geospatial kind of forensic engineering sort of stuff that they get into, forensic architecture stuff, is like, it does appear that they have full control over everything above the ground. They know who's in what departments. They're able to phone people and use their first names in telling them why they're going to eliminate them from their apartment buildings. But they're not able to touch senior leadership. If fighters were killed out on the street in actions, we would have heard about those. You know, it's like there's not a lot of evidence for Israeli success on the key issues that will allow there to be a next war. The Hamas capacity, Qassam and Islamic Jihad's capacity has not been dwindled, maybe by 4,000 rockets, but not by material, personal, like loss of capacity. Yeah, that was another thing I, I read. There was a column where they said, you know, the only thing that could justify continuing this war is if we could assassinate Muhammad Daif or Yahya Sinwar. But I guess they. Yeah, but didn't. Muhammad Daif is. Is, is essentially a corpse with some with some ideas like it makes no sense that his death firstly it would if Hamas yeah. hasn't been planning for his death for the last 10 years they're crazy you know they he that guy's been on dialysis with like every one of his limbs basically amputated because it's like rotted out of his body from various assassination attempts John probably knows the exact number of times they've tried to assassinate him but dozens <laughs> they are all yeah, it's, it's, it's literally unreasonable. Dozens. It's unreasonable to think that Hamas does not have an instant replacement for him, or even I think it's a very feasible theory that he's a figurehead at this point rather than an actual thinker, because you would not want to structure around that guy. But but having said that, I mean, the other piece of this that we're really not talking about is the tunnels into Egypt. Uh, those There were 1,700 tunnels before Sisi shut them down after the coup. And... It is very likely that those tunnels are still going. CC's control on the northern Sinai is even more tenuous than it was before. And probably there's like a constant feeder stream of, of weaponry and rockets and expertise and all that stuff. See, coming in. this makes me think uh, all of my questions have to do with the difference between what's reality and what's um, being presented. So another one of them is, you know, the idea that Biden forced this ceasefire. And I really like as soon as I heard that, I was really suspicious because I thought, you know, Biden was publicly, you know, they're blocking ceasefires at the UN, publicly supporting Israel's right to defend itself. And then all of a sudden, through quiet phone calls, uh, called Netanyahu off. And it seems to me that, again, this is a case of if... Israel was forced to stop because the you know war was such an inconvenience to the kind of lifestyle they want to have this summer. Um, then 
of course they would say we didn't stop because of the resistance, but we stopped because Biden made us, you know? It's another story where it's like, if this was not true, we would still hear more or less that it was true. <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah, what, but I don't, do I, don't, I don't see why it's so impossible to believe that the Americans played a large hand in this. They had a very, very unstable left flank and their left flank was seriously jeopardizing their geopolitical interests. And I, I think even just for both preserving American interests and Israeli interests, it needed to stop. It was a stupid, stupid war launched by the I Israelis. To, I need to hear from someone who lives in the U.S. who has experience <laughs> with this. Do you, is there, if, if only there was somebody like that. I, I've been I've been just listening um, in awe. But yeah, I. Uh... Jesus. I mean, Biden is not um, he's not a good thinker or <laughs> or <laughs> strategist. Blinken, the new secretary of state today, went, you know, on, on his first jaunt, his itinerary to under underpin, you know, the U.S.'s and, and Israel's interests. And his first stop was in Jerusalem, of course, to see uh, Netanyahu. There's nothing new that he said in this press conference with Netanyahu. It was all like, you know, we we understand Israel's right to exist. We support Israel's right to defend itself, but we want to also have a some sort of a kind of a new page of the ceasefire where we want to help the Palestinian Authority, obviously, because they, they will not work with anybody but the, the Fatah party. We want to work with the Palestinian Authority to bring much needed reconstruction and humanitarian supplies into Gaza. But we, but you know, with the with the caveat that's always given through these kinds of uh, offers that um, Hamas cannot touch any of it, that it has to be administered through the PA and none of it can touch Hamas hands. Well, when you're thinking, when you're talking about the infrastructure in the Gaza Strip and the de facto government and authorities in the Gaza Strip, it's, it's led by Hamas. Of course, it's an empty gesture and nothing's going to happen. And the U.S. obviously has a vested interest in, in keeping Palestinians oppressed and subjugated and, you know, under the thumb of, of Israeli oppression at all time. But I think this really scared the Americans and the Israelis, how effective the resistance was coming from Gaza and how coordinated it was really with Hamas leadership. And I think it really, I don't know, like Israelis were, were very shaken up that the rockets were being launched at such a rate and that the leadership of the factions were we're saying, you know, we we can bomb Tel Aviv for six months. You know, is that what you want? You, know, you want Israelis running to bomb shelters. I thought you wanted to have a nice little summer. I think that was a, a real wake up call to the Americans and the Israelis and the Israeli public that they can't keep this going. And this is not this this status quo can't it can't hold up anymore. I don't know what that means in terms of like the next steps and it's surprising that there weren't more demands through the ceasefire of ending the 14-year-old blockade and siege. I still haven't even seen the details of the ceasefire agreement, but I don't think Palestinian resistance 
forces and, and leadership will demand anything less. I mean, I think they have a lot to use as leverage at this point. So the negotiations were technically not mutually exclusively decided or whatever. They they each decided yeah. because the other person through Egypt. They made apparently made no promises and no right. concessions either side. So that part of it seems completely wide open. Media coverage yeah. of it has, of course, since made it look like they're attempting to tighten the blockade, like to do the exact opposite, right? Because they're talking about how can you send pipes and sugar into Gaza when there's a possibility that pipes and sugar will make, you know, it's just, it will make rockets, will make homemade rockets. Even though a lot of the homemade rockets are made from disassembled dud Israeli rockets, we don't get into that part of it, but we're going to cut sugar off from the 2 million people who live in this tiny enclave where they can't come or go. And it's difficult to see any solution to Gaza without a freedom of movement for people in Gaza. I mean, economically, health-wise, education-wise. Do you think that they've done enough militarily to win some kind of concession on the blockade? Or Yeah, I mean, I, I would have thought. Um, I mean, it's just a, Israel's refusing to negotiate it makes it a very difficult situation right like and it's the same with the negotiations with the prisoners like couldn't israel just negotiate with the prisoners for what they're on hunger strike for it's difficult israel's already putting i mean it's not israeli aid i hope our audience is well aware of that that's an important thing israel (laughs) destroys the gaza strip but israel is not trying to rebuild the gaza strip that kind of thing that we heard about the Americans in Iraq or whatever, giving, you know, sort of blood money to families that they killed. um, That does not happen with Israel. And when you're hearing about NGOs and aid organizations, they're international NGOs and aid organizations. It's not Israeli money bringing Israeli uh, stuffs to the border. Um, if and if the most it is, is their trucks offloading back to back materials that were provided by somebody else for the Gaza Strip. So be- and like, you know, products, supplies that had been held up at Karim Shalom crossing for for weeks, maybe even months that are finally getting through. And it's full of like rotten produce or expired medicine or, you know, things that are completely unusable. But but Israeli media, you know, with with the Israeli military make this huge show of, you know, we are we are sent. They, they had all these like trucks coming in and then going back out saying that they were they were being threatened by rocket fire and so really like trying to create this narrative of like well the israelis really are helping and look at all these supplies and the hamas is just unwilling to accept it in the 2014 war and i suspect we'll see a lot of the same there was a lot of in quotation marks aid that was donated as well that was not what anybody asked for not what anybody needed so for example the probably the most famous example was several tons of oral contraceptive pills, which were sent by some Christian organization, and uh, needed to be obviously. I thought they were against that kind of stuff. Well, the not, not for the brown people, Nora. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, and so they sent it in. Of course, anybody who knows anything about Gaza knows that pretty much every woman who's had a kid and is done has an IUD in place. Nobody really uses oral contraceptives because it's such an unreliable thing, whereas an IUD, you put it in and, and you're done for five years or seven years. So 
they had to treat it like toxic waste and dispose of it over, I think it took them a year or two to, to dispose of it. Okay. So it's going to happen again this time, of course, where there are lots of very well-meaning people. I mean, very well-meaning people will get in touch with me and say, oh, hey, we have some expired this or that. Can we send it to Gaza? Like, no. Firstly, why don't you take it and then send them your stuff that's not expired? And then that would be a bigger service to them than sending them your expired stuff. And secondly, how are we supposed to get it in? I mean, between the Israelis and the Egyptians, there's no way to get it in. So really, I think in that sense, when we asked, did, was anything achieved? I think all that Hamas really needs to accomplish is to stop the Israelis from bombing and stop the Israelis from invading. Because the Palestinians have grown reasonably adept at creating an indigenous industry that doesn't depend on anything from the outside. And in that sense, these bombings are really devastating because they set back what was a very difficult process of bringing up indigenous agriculture. I mean, can you imagine every field that's been bombed now that can't grow tomatoes or whatever it is? And they bomb the fields for a number of reasons. One, so that they can have a bomb count. And the other one, because ostensibly maybe there are there are launchers in those fields. So, Oh, I mean, I, I don't believe that at all. I believe it's part of their vindictive uh, attempt to destroy the basis of existence in that territory i don't think look if there's i I mean you destroy a field and you destroy the entire economy of a community of course of course but there's probably a launcher in one of these fields somewhere you know does it justify wiping all of them out no but but having i'm saying if the launchers weren't there they would still be doing these things maybe more of them i mean i don't know that they'd be doing more they're doing an awful lot right now (laughs) there's a question that i think you know, is worth teasing out in the sense that people will say that Hamas is giving them a pretax, right? Like the rockets give them an excuse. And I don't agree with that. Like, I think that, you know, if there was no pretext, they would invent one. This is how, you know, imperialists work, right? Like you could, you could lie down and say, I will do nothing to give you any excuse. And they'll, you know, stomp on you and say, oh my God, you just attacked my foot. It's like the Onion article, <laughs> AP launches journalist at, uh, at building in Gaza, right? Yeah. It, I, I mean, I do yeah. generally agree that you always need a pretext and the Israelis are often generating pretexts. I also think, at least my feeling, is that a lot of the people who are in the military system truly feel like they're attacking military targets primarily rather than destroying the fields as their primary goal for the agricultural fields. I think it's very different in terms of the civilian infrastructure, but is there really more than sort of one or two people out there who's saying let's destroy their entire agricultural capabilities Yeah, I I believe there is because they don't make a distinction. That's the whole point, right? They don't make a distinction between civilian and military. They they make their doctrine, which is American doctrine, going back to Indian Wars (laughs) um, of the 18th century, is that if it helps the enemy survive, then it's considered a fair target for destruction. So burning cornfields, attacking water storage, attacking stored food, 
that's how Americans have done warfare since then. And the Israelis have always adopted that. Did you have more stats, Justin? Did you want to give people a good like rundown of what they faced over those 10 days? I only have those numbers, 248 people total, 66 of whom were children, and then the 17,000 buildings figure. Of course, specific targets included media buildings, entire apartment complexes that were kind of knocked down, bombed and fell down like 9-11 kind of building collapses. And then, of course, the targets, including the the power station, um, the roads around the hospital. Uh, I, I believe they gave the some warning to the UNRWA, the, the United Nations Refugee Organization, that they were going to bomb schools. I saw the note that they were going to bomb the schools. I don't know. I didn't see any follow up as to whether they did, but yeah, I believe they did. And also there was a women and children, like a prenatal and postnatal clinic that was bombed. The only COVID testing center in the doctor in Gaza. charge of COVID. Right. There was that, there was that psychological, this was one of the worst oh, stories, this, man. This the psychological yeah. trauma unit or something where they had a, like 11 was, kids, yeah. 11 children that were traumatized from previous attacks. That unit had those patients admitted into it. It was an outpatient treatment program. And they, right. they confirmed them yeah, killed so these kids in were, their individual yeah, homes. In their homes. But they were all in treatment. Homes. You're trying to convince a kid yeah. that they're safe because that's the starting point to trying to get them to recover. And then right. it happens. I'll also add one more set of a couple of numbers, which is that the number of COVID tests they did as of this morning for the 24 hours previous to that was 1,341. And the number of positives was 448, which is a massive positivity rate. Your positivity rate should really be no more than 5%. Otherwise, you're really, really testing way too little. We know that the Israelis aren't allowing enough testing supplies in as well. And oh my God, the COVID situation over the next sort of four weeks, I can't even, I can't even begin to fathom it because you have I mean, how, yeah, how can clinics or Shifa or any, like how, how do physicians even start preparing for something like that? You can't because they don't have PPE. They don't have any of the treatment medications, you know, so there's some medications that definitely work and there's some definite medications that may work and you really can't access any of them in, in Gaza. But not only that, you as a medical provider, let's say you confirm a case, where are you supposed to put it now? Your intensive right. care units are full of young people who are the victims of trauma, which is highly survivable in comparison to COVID. Uh, when somebody comes into the intensive care unit with COVID, their death rate is between 10 and 30%. So I imagine that they're preferring to put the trauma patients in the intensive care over the COVID patients because they just have a much higher survival rate. But that's going to mean functionally that they do what we would call a discharge to die. So you discharge them back to their home. You tell the family, look, they're probably going to die. Just take care of them as best as you can. And you have this super spreader of COVID who then is going to give it to the rest of the family in an environment where nobody, nobody can separate right now and where families are clustered together because so many homes are destroyed. And so the families were moving to the United Nations schools and packing tens of thousands of people together in a pandemic in a closed space with not proper with not proper anything. In some cases, there was no water or electricity in the places that they're being corralled to and that there was no testing for the two two weeks of the war. 
and the lead doctor, Tarek, maybe you could describe about that. The lead doctor was assassinated over the course of the of the war. Like Israel's main push for the last six months has been this vaccination plan, right? Like that they're the global leader in vaccinations and that they're actually asking for tourists to come. They're putting up campaign posters all over the world to have people come to Israel because Israel is COVID free or so they say. And meanwhile, on their southern border, a war where 66,000 people had to live in schools packed together I think it was only in 40 schools too. So you were like more than a thousand people in a school, families packed together, unable to leave. It seems to be a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah, I mean, the deaths of those doctors is huge. Any doctor who dies in a system that's that hard pressed is always going to be a loss. But the first doctor you're talking about, Ayman Abul Auf, was a brilliant internist, internal medicine specialists who had headed up the COVID response. And this guy didn't suddenly become the head of COVID response just because he was the head of internal medicine as a whole at Shifa Hospital and was seasoned. He was just very, very good at his job. Uh, when I would see him, when I would chat with him, because in, in Shifa, you kind of separate out the medical emergency and the trauma emergency. So when I'd be in the medical emergency, I would see him quite a bit. And he just really had such a professional approach. You know, not only did he die, of course, but his, I think his whole family died, his wife and his kids. And Dr. Mu'in Al-Alul was the other one who's the only board certified neurologist in Gaza. And this guy, when he died, I guess, luckily or unluckily, he died alone. His wife, Sana, and his daughter, Aya, survived, even though Aya was severely burned, including on her face. She's a 25-year-old woman who really was, was sort of studying and at the beginning of her life. And uh, Sana, I, I don't know exactly what her injuries were, but I do know that she was severely injured, and I do know that she's alive right now. So when, when you sort of look at this, of course, there's the tragedies of their families, but then with the loss of Dr. Maureen, there is no coming back from that. You know, we're working really, really hard in Canada, for example, as part of one of the projects I work on to get specialists into Gaza. And when we were talking about neurologists, the entire plan revolved around having the neurologists we trained here go back and work with Maureen to kind of polish off their, their skills. And now he's gone. That sets neurology back, not just by a year or two or five, but more like 10, 15, 20 years. Um, and that's devastating absolutely devastating. In terms of, of the COVID response, though, I mean, I guess the only good thing about the situation is that it's so bad that probably even a genius like, like Dr. Ayman would not be able to really salvage this for the time being. So I think now we just kind of have to watch this fire burn try our best, see what we can do in terms of PPE. You know, Glia, the, the group I work with that does medical devices, one of our centers was bombed. We were producing PPE, but we also had some respirators and so on that needed to come in. And the Israelis have had them detained for over a month now, since before the escalation. Those respirators aren't coming in. I mean, the chances of the Israelis letting them in is, let's be realistic, very, very, very low. It's bad, obviously. It's going to get worse, unfortunately. And now it becomes a question of how we can rebuild in the ashes of all this thing. I mean, how? 
you know, like there was a, in the last uh, few hours just before the when the ceasefire was called and then just before the ceasefire went into effect, Israeli warplanes, you know, did a lot of damage. People were, were still rebuilding their homes from the 2014 attacks. How can Gaza be rebuilt right now? Yeah, I mean, that's during the March of Return. It was interesting because I'd be there and people would be like, oh, that's where the old hospital used to be. That's where, you know, my grandfather's house used to be. A lot, of course, hasn't been rebuilt. I do think this is where we might, might want to start transitioning into some of the international response. Can you believe that the largest sort of Palestinian human rights protest in London, UK happened after the ceasefire? And I think that's because fundamentally people are starting to understand that the ceasefire is not the end. And right now, it's clear that the pro-Israeli reactionaries are out in full force, and we have to start working on it. So from the medical perspective, there's this one really good doctor uh, named Dr. Ritika Gol, who, and I mean this as absolutely a compliment, cares about Palestine way less than she cares about every other issue in her portfolio. Now, she's super active on every human rights issue that you can imagine. And she's being targeted and accused of anti-Jewish racism, which is nonsense. She's being targeted. There's a Toronto District School Board resource teacher who sent some mailings around. The CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, a lot of journalists from there signed a letter. They're being punished to being told they can't cover the Middle East because by signing a letter asking for more balanced coverage of the Middle East proves they're too biased to cover the Middle East. At York, there's a teaching assistant who also sent an email rescheduling an office hour. So basically, two of the biggest universities, the media and the school board in Toronto alone. Well, this doesn't come out of nowhere. It's it's coordinated strategy by Israel lobby organizations to try and deflect the global attention on Palestine back onto the, you know, the Israeli, the Israeli narrative. Um and you know, manufacturing all of these like just fake fake accounts of anti-Semitism in the U.S. and and in Canada. I mean, it's all it's all a very coordinated tactic. Yesterday, I was thinking about Ritika Gol and Javier Davila, and they're both like like cartoonishly nice people. Like you you won't find if you line up a hundred people, you'd you'd have to line up maybe five hundred people to find one of those. <laughs> Like the first hundred, you won't. Then I realized that is actually who they target. They target actually the yeah. nicer people. Like Jeremy Corbyn right. is actually, everybody who knows him, I, I've never met him, but everybody who knew or who knows Jeremy Corbyn says that he's that kind of guy. Like he's the, yeah. you know, he's the guy who helps old ladies cross the street and, you know, like comes back. Like he's raging anti Semite. Yeah. And so, but I guess that's the point. Like if you get those, <laughs> if you can make those people, if you can turn those people into the bad guy, um, right. then anybody else, you know. It's, it's also notable that they're not really going after any Palestinians. And I think that, that that's, that's probably for two big reasons. One of them, is that Palestinians have largely been absent from that conversation because they've been silenced over time. Um, and actually, you know, Justin, you wrote a really important piece this week about specifically addressing and defining anti-Palestinian racism, which I think is an important resource that, that uh, people would, 
would really do well to read. And it's an academic resource. It's a resource that really looks at what is happening to the Palestinian voice and what's happening to the Palestinian struggle and how specific anti-Palestinian racism is distinct from other entities like Islamophobia and anti-Arab racism um, mean that they can't really speak. But the other, the other piece of it as well is that those Palestinians who have survived that, sort of been forged by that crucible of accusations and attacks over the last decade or two decades uh, are not easy targets for groups like, you know, Sija or, or even the Friends of Simon Wiesenthal and, and groups like this that are targeting Rithika. So they're not coming after us because we are already uh, sort of in tune with the attacks and how to respond to them. Um, I think when it comes to somebody like Javier, I, I don't know his, his story specifically, but you know, it sounds like he's a person who was just a person of good conscience who decided to say something. And this creates a real problem because if you leave people like that to speak their mind and conscience, then that's only gonna go to, to places that support human rights. It's actually his job. Right. Like he, he's he's some kind of uh, like anti-oppression trainer. So he sends around these mailings to teachers about oppression, about transphobia, about racism, about anti-black racism, George Floyd, like all of these things. And he's like, I, we respond to what's going on. So he sent two mailings over the past some, however much time, which are available. He, he did a medium post explaining his approach and who he is and what he's about. Um, you know, he's not backing down, but he's also, you know, he's not, he, like, you can see a clear thing. He's like, we honor the trauma of people who suffered from anti-Semitism. We honor the trauma of Palestinians. We don't try to weigh them again. Like, it's a very sophisticated anti-oppression kind of framework, but it is his actual job. Like, he wouldn't be doing his job if he didn't do this. And that's, you know, that's another thing. Rithika's job is actually some kind of equity diversity include like she's got some kind of post um working on market yeah yeah she's a defined that way yeah i mean i i'm really curious nora about your your perspective on this because as a person who cares about human rights and who is truly like an anti-racist i worry that that this conflation of anti-semitism with anti-israel is really just going to make anti like true anti-Semitism worse. Yes. You know, the anti-Jewish racism, that yeah. is to say. Uh, yes. And many, many people have said that for, for you know, many years. Um, yeah. I mean, when it's, it's a, it's a, it's a coordinated strategy um, to conflate Zionism um, and Judaism. And so any attack yeah, any any perceived attack or any criticism of Israel or you know Israeli settler colonial policy is by that you know de facto conclusion um, an attack on all Jews, as if Israel and Judaism and Jewish people everywhere were one and one in the same, um, which is and just an explicit anti-Semitic idea in itself. I mean, this is why we all say Zionism is anti-Semitism. Zionism is, is a political ideology that treats all Jews as a homogenous, you know, monolith. Um, and, and so in, in that essence, we are 
you know, and Netanyahu proclaims himself the leader of the Jewish people, right? So he's like steeped in this ideology, obviously. Um, and by doing that, by, by, you know, linking Judaism and Jewish people with Israel's massacres and genocidal attacks on Gaza that we saw earlier this month. Um, of course, that's, that's going to upset people and people are going to link Jewish people with violence. And so we, we, we have to de-link that. We have to fight against it. Um, it is, uh, it's, it's unconscionable. And this is, you know, one of the many dangers of Zionism itself. Um, and uh, it's uh, so, and, and, you know, by, by trying to conflate criticism of Israeli policy with, uh, with criticism and, and hatred and bigotry against Jews, um, that leaves the door. Yeah, it completely, it, like, uh, it's it's kind of like crying wolf when there's actual attacks of anti-Jewish bigotry, which you know there are. Um, they they get completely ignored because the the focus the spotlight is on people who are anti-racist who are you know in support of Palestinian the Palestinian liberation struggle being smeared as anti-Semites for for criticizing Israel. Uh, it's extraordinarily dangerous, and we're seeing it. Um, we're seeing it happen, I mean, in, you know, everywhere from the US to Canada to Germany. Um, am, I, am I accurate in my perception that American Jewry has broken with the general Israeli narrative as of this war? Um, yeah, I mean, we published a thing on EI a few days ago that said that only something like 26% of um, I don't know if it was specifically Jewish people in the U.S., but but I think it was just like the general population um, backed Israel in this latest uh, killing spree. Um, but I, I would say in general, you know, especially the younger generation of Jewish Americans, um, of which I'm no longer a part, um, is is uh, is pretty solidly either like they don't have a position on Israel at all because it's completely out of their like, you know, purview, um, or they're explicitly anti-Zionist and they are struggling against, you know, their, their parents and, and grandparents' generations um, who tried to, you know, raise them in, in, in an indoctrination sort of, you know, Zionist myth uh, in their family. So, you know, that's why groups like Jewish Voice for Peace, which uh, is explicitly anti-Zionist and the international Jewish anti-Zionist movement um, have like just, I mean, their membership has just skyrocketed. Um, whereas like, you know, Zionist organizations are in a panic because they, they can't get their, um, they can't get their, the, the new generation of, of Zionists in, in the US. But I mean, as I, as I understand it, like even some Zionist organizations are breaking with the IPAC model, like J Street kind of being the, yeah. the newly emerged. I mean, kind of, it's just like shuffling decks. Uh, whatever shuffling chairs on the titanic chairs yeah. on the titanic some of that is also sophisticated uh yeah pro-israel stuff it's it's branding too it's like j street wants to pretend like it's uh you know hip and cool and you know the voice of you know younger progressive jews but i mean they're 
their rhetoric is is always you know to to underline israel's policies um and you know i i don't know how effect i mean j street you know has has uh come out and said yes you know the occupation is bad they they even like signed on to a, a bill by a lawmaker in minnesota that um you know that of course it's not going to pass but if it passed it would um it basically block aid u.s aid to israel uh that would go to um the imprisonment you know torture and abuse of children in, in israeli prisons and j street actually said that they you know supported that betty mccollum's uh, piece or something yeah betty mccollum's bill yeah yeah i mean it's it's kind of interesting to me to sort of try to figure out where the reactionary forces are coming in because now what happened after 2014, I mean, I guess one of our uh, unfortunate privileges at this point is that we've watched this happen a few times. After 2012, rebuilding was easy. The tunnels were open and the rebuilding was almost instantaneous, which shows that the Palestinians lack neither money nor initiative to rebuild. After 2014, however, and actually by the time the coup happened uh, in Egypt to close the tunnels in the middle of 2013, there, the rebuilding was already done. So after 2014, though, there was really no rebuilding to speak of for years. In fact, I, as I think uh, John had pointed out, like the rebuilding is still not complete. So yeah. now, as I kind of look at it, my biggest fear is that we're not going to be able to rebuild. We're not going to be able to bring things back to like a kind of normal. And really encouraging for me is the movements that we've seen that are pushing people to do something now, but I just don't know how to direct it so that we get this rebuilding to happen. Yeah, I mean, right? Like there, I mean, we're getting requests all the time. How, you know, where do we send our money to help people in Gaza rebuild or get the medications they need or school books for children or whatever? There's no yeah, it's not PayPal. Stuff. The is problem isn't banned. stuff. The problem right. is the blockade, right? Right, exactly. We have to defend these people that are being defamed by the pro-Israel. Uh, yeah, lobby. we have to defend. Yeah, how can how can people do that? Like in their, you know, in, I in mean, Canada like, or in the US. It's funny. It's ridiculous because it's all like it's all this war of letters, and you might feel yeah. like it's ridiculous, like a ridiculous thing to like send a letter to the dean or send a letter to the TDS to the Toronto District School Board. But like that's exactly what you need to do for every letter that they get. Yeah, they, they tally the letters. Yeah, they're yeah. just it's, it's this is this is a battle of letters. Like pe- they need to understand that people support anti-racism and include anti-Palestinian racism as racism. We've been really glad to have Tarek and Justin with us on this yeah. episode, Nora. Yeah, thanks, guys. And you can find Justin at the Anti-Empire Project. And you can find Tarek at the Glia Project, working on making low-cost 3D-printed medical supplies. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Thanks for this conversation. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Stay safe.